I'm going to bring on our guests here today um, because I want to jump right in if I can. So I'm going to bring on Ryan and I'm going to bring on Emily. And once they come on, I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. And really, you guys, what they do is what we need all of y'all to do. Okay, because this isn't just a job for consultants and coaches and advisors. Hey, Ryan, how are you? Doing well. Good to see you. Good to see you. This isn't a job for just coaches and consultants and advisories. This is a job and this is a muscle, you know, that we all need to build. So Ryan and Emily are two of our amazing designers at LeapGen. Uh, but forget the fact they work at LeapGen. They're amazing. They're amazing humans. And one of the things that make them amazing humans is that they have empathy embedded in themselves and in what they bring to work, what they bring to work. And I'm so glad that the 1400 people on here are hearing this. What they bring to work is the human side of work, which we all need to get better at. So Ryan, maybe you could start by introducing yourself and just a little about your background. And Marissa said, love these talented people. I do too. So I'm so glad you guys are here. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Yeah, so Ryan Malkus, I lead the design practice at LeapGen. Uh, by way of introduction, background has been in learning and development, uh, talent management for most of my career. I have a passion for, uh, the, again, the human side of things. And so I have a background in IO psychology. Um, interesting fact about me, even though you didn't ask it, I'll just supply it unsolicited. I was a preschool teacher for many years when I was younger because of the human just the humanness of little people, like the realness of people. And it taught me a lot about the difference between sympathy and empathy. And we'll talk about that, I think, in just Woo! a yeah. Coming out hot, dude. The difference yeah, between know. sympathy and empathy. Just right out of the gates. But I won't, let me just, I'll just transition to one of my best friends, Emily Dahl. And Emily can introduce her. I guess also a coworker, which is also cool. But Emily. All Gail right. can well, totally see you as a school teacher, by the way. So for what that's worth. It was eye-opening when I learned he was a preschool teacher. I was like, yep, yep, it makes sense, right? It just clicks. Um, He's kind of Mr. Rogersy, isn't he, in a way? He, he can Won't be, you yeah. be my neighbor? I definitely could do that. Was that. I, I bet that half the people on here have no idea who Mr. Rogers is. I think I just completely aged myself, didn't I? Emily, you know who Mr. Rogers I is? I know who Mr. Rogers is, okay? I'm young, but I'm not that young. He, okay. was, still a, he was still like a millennial right. staple. Yeah. I mean, he was still... Yeah, for sure. Okay, good. Tammy, hey, how are you? Good to see you. Okay, right, Emily, so sorry. My background. Um, yes. So my name's Emily Dahl. Um, I'm a experienced design researcher and designer here at LeapGen. Um, and as by way of background, I really spend a lot of time in traditional HR operations roles, um, but got really frustrated by the fact that we were always so focused on efficiency at the cost of that experience for our employees. We were supposed to be the people helping our employees, but it felt like we were always just focused on how do we do better process, right? Like, how do we make sure we're, we're meeting our compliance needs? But people were saying, I still don't feel supported. And so I think that's where for me, I always said, there's got to be a better way to do this. And so that's how I backed into user experience design. So I have my master's in UX, but I've always said, I don't want to design for a screen. I want to design for people. And I want to design in that whole space. And that's how I found LeapGen because they we really do live that. And I've I've been so happy to just find others again and again in this space who start are starting to really get that. That empathy does drive that experience holistically, no matter what we're doing. Yeah. So Ryan, I mean, this is kind of the, this is weird. This is like the Minnesota can Minnesota mafia here today, right? I mean, Ryan's here in Minneapolis, Minneapolis area. Emily, you're kind of Minneapolis. Like should I call Duluth a suburb? Kind of like by two and a half hours. Yeah, suburb, suburb, suburb way suburb. Um, yeah, I'm here in Minneapolis, so it's kind of cool. I mean, and uh, by the way, there's people outside of Minneapolis that do this stuff too. But uh, great to have you guys. And Mark, I probably will uh, will not. I mean, I could change into sneakers and a cardigan. Maybe we'll save that for uh, we'll save that for another time. But Ryan, you brought up something that I think is so amazing. Um, is in this whole world of work, this concept of sympathy and empathy. Mm. Um, Steve, by the way, thanks for putting the job offer there. There's not a, it says love any leads, seasonal material handler, forklift operator. 
you know, once again, I think that Steve, sorry, sorry, Ryan, really quickly. I mean, one of the things I want to make sure that I do here is that Steve posted that job and I really appreciate you posting that job. But one of the things that I think Steve is brilliant at uh, and Steve's organization's brilliant at, at Hearth and Home Technologies is talking about their value proposition and, and, and who they are. So, you know, if you look at the value proposition of Hearth and Home, inspired by the creative, powerful force of life, or excuse me, of fire. And I think one of the things about that is it's something that they bring to all of their workers as well. So, you know, when we post jobs and talk about jobs here, it's not, we shouldn't say, hey, you know, Ryan, I mean, I'm sure Ryan, you'd be a great seasonal material handler and forklift operator, but it's not as much about that as is what we can learn from these postings and how do we get better at postings, realizing we're all competing for the same talent. And Ryan, I think that goes into my question to you, which starts with how do you design? How do you design with empathy? How do you design in a way where postings or onboarding or just making you know people that have worked for, you know, I have a friend on the call here that I know has worked for the same company for 14 years. Like how do we design in a way that keeps people engaged? And how do we as managers and leaders manage and lead in a way that keeps mm-hmm. people engaged? That's a good question. Um, I threw something on LinkedIn the other day and just um, as an aside, if you have job postings, like tag me in it, if we're connected on LinkedIn, which I have to imagine, I'm probably connected with 90% of you all on here, just tag me in it because um, I have a pretty extended network. And so we can probably find the right person for your jobs. But I mean, what you do, Ryan, in posting those jobs is amazing, by the way. So thank you for, from a community standpoint, thank you for doing that. Yeah, the point of the network for sure. Um, so how do we, like, how do we design thoughtfully? And so I threw something on LinkedIn and it was, you know, this concept of C-A-R-E. And it's not an acronym. It's just the word care, right? We, do, we don't need to over engineer this. We don't have to make it complex or confusing. It's, we just have to care. That's the first thing that we have to do. Like, I really care about how people feel, their quality of life, what we're doing. And that's the first step to empathy rather than just sympathy. And so when I talk about sympathetic design versus empathetic design, sympathetic design is I feel bad for somebody and I'm trying to pacify them, placate them. I think of my daughter in the preschool age falling off the bike. She cries. I give her ice cream. It stops the crying. That's sympathetic because I felt bad for her. It doesn't solve the problem of why she fell off the bike. Maybe she needed training wheels. Maybe I needed to be there and help her, you know, put my hand on her back until she got more comfortable with it. That would have been empathetic, understanding where she is and what she's doing. But again, it all goes back to just caring. We have to take a step back and say, do I truly care about my people, their experience and what they're going through? And it's an, it's an opportunity to be honest. There's no shame in saying, I don't, I don't know if I care because you can change that. You can, you can change that. There's again, I want to try to get away from the shaming of people too. If you look in the mirror and say, do I care about my people's experience? And I, I know I don't care. Ask yourself why something probably happened that causes you to not care or feel the way that you do, but just taking a step back. Emily, anything to add? Yeah. And I think, I think one of the things we talk about when we think about sympathetic versus empathetic mindset is really that transition from hearing to listening. So if you think about, I hear you versus I'm listening to you, listening is an active engagement. It's an active activity to say, I understand what you're telling me. And again, I bring back that care. I, I not only hear it, but I'm recognizing what you are bringing to the table is valuable. And I want to, I want to engage with that. I want to make sure that we understand you as a person. So I think it is that mindset shift too. So instead of just doing an engagement survey, what are we doing to actually have a listening strategy? Mm. How are we connecting to those people, making sure they feel valued and heard? So, so Emily and Ryan, one of the, well, as I try to do my directing here also, uh, and make the screen showing video and moving people around on the screen. Sorry about that. Um, you know, one of the things I think that's really important is people always ask about how to do this at scale. Mm. So, for example, I know we've got organizations on the phone like Dairy Queen. Uh, I know we have organ. I'm just looking through the list. Uh, Hearth and Home. Mm-hmm. I know we have SAP Success Factors. We have Service Now. Um, yeah, I'm looking, we've got major hospital organizations. Like we've got, I mean, we've got the biggest of the big companies on the line here with us today. Um, And, you know, 
we can't know everyone. I mean, Ryan, you, you can design for your kids. We know our kids, Um, but you know, that whole concept and you know, where we're around personas and how do we design for people is so fascinating because I don't think business has been really good at this. I mean, we've been good at designing for consumers, but we haven't been good at designing for employees. So, you know, I'd love your guys take on that because to me, that's, you know, I think we all, Ryan, I think we all kind of care. Yeah. I I shouldn't have said kind of, I think we all care, but I think we don't know how to care in a scalable, personable, personalized way. Yeah. And you said something at the end there, personalized way. And where organizations get stuck is the difference between personalization and individualization. Individualization is a solution for everyone. Personalization is a solution for someone. It still makes sense. It's still relevant and it's scalable. So everyone versus someone. Yeah. And we can call out groups of people that have similar needs and wants and desires so that we can deliver solutions at scale. And from a product development standpoint and a consumerization standpoint, companies have been doing this for years. If we, you know, I remember being sick, staying home from school and watching daytime television. There was advertisement that clearly was not for me. Like, you know, I didn't need, you know, freed and gum. It was not for me, but they knew that they had a target audience and they were able to design something that spoke to a group of individuals that still delivered something at scale. And so Emily talked a little bit about having this listening strategy. The listening strategy allows us to identify, yeah, how individuals are different, but how do we look at the similarities between our populations so that as we design solutions, we can deliver something at scale, value at scale, which is important because if we can't prove value of the work that we're doing, the design always becomes extracurricular and we just don't have time to do extracurricular activities. do I need a, do I need a strategy to listen? Yeah, yeah. Like, this a- sounds weird. I mean, I, sorry, to, I don't mean to be. I'm like, you know, when I get to play this talk show host here, I can do, I can make stupid yeah. statements like that, and I know we do. But having, I mean, a lot of people are like strategy for listening. What are you talking about? Like, I mean, Emily or Ryan, I don't know if you want to go into that, but that, that just that sounds weird yet important. Yeah. Yeah, I'll let I'll let Emily chime in just for reference sake. So Emily and I might have some fun banter back and forth. We've been uh, we spend too much time together. We have a podcast called Design and Donuts, so you might hear us like go back and forth as when we normally do our little spiel. So just I love Design and Donuts. BFF, so I I poke fun a lot. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. She keeps me humble, which is good. But I know Emily listening strategy. Yeah, I think strategy is an important part of listening because if you think about being active, we think about being engaged, you do need to take the time to say, you know, what am I going to do with what I'm what I'm being told, right? You can't just say, oh, great, I heard it. And now let's just put it in a, a bucket over here and leave it there. If you're not actively listening and having a plan in place to say, how am I going to take action? How am I going to follow up? How am I going to let you know that what you're telling me matters? You're, you're always going to be, I know I saw it in the chat, like chasing those fires. You're always going to be jumping from one thing to the next to the next. Who's the, the squeakiest wheel? Who's screaming the loudest? But it's not going to actually help you think about broadly. How do we make sure we holistically think about all of our people um, rather than those individuals that are calling out? So making sure we have a plan in place of, you know, if we're taking in information, what do we plan to do? What action do we plan to take? Who's responsible for taking action? And that's really important to foundationally understand as an organization, if you're going to do this well well at scale, Mm -hmm. or you always are going to be in that, I'm trying to just go from fire to fire to fire mode. And that gets exhausting. We are humans too in HR. We can't do that sustainably forever. And when we talk about listening too, like why would we need a listening strategy? So listening is hearing plus action. So it has to be intentional. Hearing can be accidental or incidental. Like you might hear Grace and Greta, my, my girls outside my office, screaming and playing. And you hear that, but it doesn't have any bearing on your life. There's nothing that you take away from it. There's no action needed there. It's just an input. It's a piece of stimulus. There's a lot of hearing that happens in an organization. The strategy help, helps us understand what are the ways that we hear. Are we hearing through conversations with managers? Are we doing pulse checks? Are we looking at, like, let's look at people's calendar and see how many people are actually scheduling 7 a.m. meetings now when they never used to do that before. That's all hearing. We're getting input. The strategy comes into play when we say, what types of hearing are we doing? How do we analyze that? And then what's our plan of action? 
And that leads us into design because without that data, we're designing blind. I'm saying hearing and seeing, but we have no bearing on what we need to be focused on. So the strategy allows us to understand how we get the data, what we're looking for, and then what we do with it. Organizations hear all the time, and that's that's one of the problems. We hear all the time, but we don't do anything with it. And so at some point in time, people just stop talking or stop communicating. And they go on Indeed, they use your internet, and they find a new job. Yeah, you know, you guys, um, without my co-host, Jess here, my directing slash reading the chat, sometimes, I, sometimes I'm a little overwhelmed here. So I apologize if I missed some of the comments. But Aman said, design thinking will be baseline since we're pivoting constantly to find out the best solution for any bottleneck, which I think is great. Um, Mark, if you really want to care at scale, you have to make sure you're embracing diversity at every level. I mean, diversity with a capital D. That means neurodiversity and ideological diversity too. Most organizations have a really hard time with this. Um, mm -hmm. Kyle, I think for a long time we've been customer first and the employee will be okay. Um, you know, so when you think, I mean, some of those are great. And I think Aman said, I feel it begins with growth mindset. And, you know, um, you know, I put a poll up and for those of you online, if you can click on polls, this is fascinating to me. And now maybe it's just because y'all are listening to this uh, episode. But um, you take a look at this and they say, who's practicing design thinking? And we've got 14, we've got 100%, which is like, hmm, interesting, which is great, by the way. And Ryan, I think one of the things I'd love to talk a little bit about, and I, I, mean, I think this is where a lot of organizations struggle, is we practice design thinking, but how do we put design thinking in play? So we're working with organizations all over the world on deployments of systems, deployments of journeys, deployments of processes, yet when they implement, sorry, when they implement, they don't take into account any of that design stuff. And then all of a sudden they go live and they're like, that didn't look like what we said. So how do we fill that chasm between design? You know, this is like design build of a house, I assume. Like, hey, I think I'm going to have a house. I want a house with four bedrooms and two baths. I don't say much. And then all of a sudden, you know, nine months later, I get a house. And it's got four bedrooms and two baths, but the bedrooms are at opposite sides. It's got stairs, which I can't navigate, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you fill that chasm? Yeah, you need to have a, a conductor. Like you need to have somebody who's in front of the orchestra because you'll have all these different instruments playing, but we need the conductor ensuring everybody's playing off of the same sheet music. And I think we've been, we've been really privileged to play that role at organizations in the past and recently, because what happens is we have multiple groups, you know, we have an enterprise doing work, we have a deployment partner like LeapGen doing work, we have an SI or an implementation partner doing work, and they work within silos. And so there's a lot of great work happening, but it's non-harmonious work. If you want design thinking to turn into design doing and be something, you need to be able to bring that design through from start. And there is no finish. I think that's the biggest misnomer too. There is no start to finish. You need to bring it through and it needs to live. We need to use design thinking to inform your agile sprints. You need to use design thinking to understand what your backlog is from prioritization. You need to have design thinking throughout the entire process. So if you need to pivot, you can say, well, what would the Emily persona feel if we made this decision? And Jason, you talk about design for the, the empty chair often. If you don't have that design voice throughout the entire program or throughout the continuation of the program, the empty chair then gets moved into another room and then we start making decisions in the absence of the true value that we're trying to deliver. And then you have a piece of technology that doesn't do anything that our employees want. And we can spend some time in a minute. I don't want to get too deep into it. The difference between functional and technical requirements and experience requirements, the difference between uh, an experience level agreement and a service level agreement, different things. Yeah. Yeah, completely agree. And Ryan, I just, while I was sitting here listening to you, I was reading the chat, I usually see the path forward early, but I have to take them on a journey so they can discover the way forward themselves. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I love Aman's comment, time has arrived when we go from doing agile to being agile, mm -hmm. um, which I think is really interesting as well. So, you know, all of those things I think are, are really, really important, but you know, how does this relate? How does this tie the, then back into like the the doing, like the being versus the doing. Like, do I need to have different people? Do I? Is it just a mm -hmm. mindset? Is it rephrasing 
implementations? Like, how do I how do I do that? M, this is this is right up your alley because you've been doing this with a bunch of our clients with capability building. Yeah, and I think I think it's a mix. I mean, obviously, I think the foundationally you need the capabilities within your team to really drive design thinking. But I think as I think about when we've been talking a lot about this, and even just seeing some of the comments come through around, you know, part of this is being willing as an organization, and I say organization, not individuals, to take the risk and open yourself up to the fact that you're going to need. Going back to our listening, you need to talk to your people. You need to ask your people. And if you don't set that foundation and open yourself up to the risk of hearing what's going wrong and maybe what's going well too, you're never going to make forward movement if you don't have that mindset as an organization to be willing to have those conversations, to be willing to take that risk to say, you know what, tell us the good, bad, and the ugly so that we can continue to move forward and even have the strategy, even have design principles and practice. Um, So I think that is a big like where we see a lot of barriers and I think many organizations is that an organizational level, even if you have the best designers on your team, if they're not able to access your people, if they're not able to actually act on what they can actually hear and listen about in the organization, you're not going to get very far. And so we spend a lot of time, I think, with clients and like the organizations we work with saying, you know what, let's go back to the very beginning and say, do you have the strategies and, you know, even interest in place to seek out your employees? Do you make time for it? And I mean, I think it's a struggle. I think a lot of organizations, especially now that we're in this remote setting, getting in front of your people is a lot harder than I think many of us think. We've, so, we've had a so lot Emily, of people struggle. I, Emily, you just, you just touched on something, which I think is that this remote setting, mm-hmm. you know, now I'm, I'm curious as to how you think that this has either become more or less important in, in, in what we call the now of work, um, you know, do we think, I mean, how much, I mean, I have a, you know, I have a big opinion on this, but I'm going to stay out of it. Like, what do you guys think about that? Like, do you think it's more important now? Do you think it's less important? And how, you know, someone, I was on the phone last night with a client who said, how in the heck are we supposed to do this where we're just like, we tried to roll out a thousand dollar vaccine credit and we had all these people start to send notes in as to why they couldn't get vaccinated for whatever religious beliefs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How do we, we don't have time for empathy. And I was like, something didn't feel mm. good about that conversation, but I love your thoughts as to like HR is at a mo as at an inflection point, like we've never seen, like, how do we do this now? Is it more important or less important? All right. Well, I will jump in and I'll let then Ryan, because I know Ryan has thoughts, but um, Mark just posted in the comments and I see it 2020 and 2021, the era of intentional engagement and totally spot on intentional is the huge word there. Because I think now when we have a lot of our workforce working in remote ways or even hybrid, it's a lot easier as an individual employee to, you know, mask how you're feeling. It's a lot harder as an organization to be able to just get the feel of your employees by day-to-day interactions. Like to Ryan's point earlier, you know, he may overhear his daughters talking about something and that can help you understand the underlying maybe pulse and recognize we need to do something. But in the absence of that, unless we are intentionally taking those actions in a remote setting, we're going to miss those markers. And so I think it's become even more important to us, we have to be intentional, right? We have to continuously make those connections. We can't just let it accidentally happen. But Ryan, I'll let you jump in. I know you have thoughts too. Yeah, I love um, the comment designing for change. <laughs> Coincidentally, that is uh, what we've started calling one of the, the most consumed offerings at LeapGen because we didn't know what to call it. And we said, well, what are we doing here? Well, we're designing intentionally and we're infusing change throughout the entire process. And so that designing for change is absolutely uh, spot on. So well said. Is it more important than it's ever been? I think it's definitely uh, overtly relevant. It's going to get more important every day. Like just moving forward. Every day that you wait to do empathetic or intentional engagement or empathetic design is a day too late. Uh, and it's because, I mean, we've, we've been doing research around like, why are people motivated to do work? And Two years ago, we got a lot of really creative responses, new and, and cool work, engaging work, team atmosphere, company culture. 
those are first world answers. What we found is that everybody's been thrown into this lack of Maslow's hierarchy of need that that those two bottom rungs uh, feel less secure, less stable. And so now people are saying, my motivation is money and benefits. People are hyper aware of their situation today. Maybe maybe we're all too aware of what's going on in the world. And so being intentional and designing with empathy, I'm not going to say is more important than it's ever been. It's definitely more palpable. We see the reasons why we need to do it. And we also see uh, the pitfalls of not doing it way more clearly than we have ever seen before. So uh, uh, an important question that I have is whose job is this? So is it, does this become, I mean, and, and, and this is a little bit of a, does this become everyone's job? Uh, do we have a special team that does this? So as we organize, and I'd love for you guys um, you know, Dave just said something. If you do, if you think design isn't important, just look at the reasons behind the Great Resignation. Mm-hmm. Like, who designs for the fact now that there might be a bias between men and women as far as hey, how do we work? Who may have this uh, you know role of responsibility when all of a sudden I realize that hey, there might be segregation between people from working at an office and working from home. Whose job is this? a great question and i think there's two components like there's whose job is it and then like who's responsible right and those are two different things to me i think everybody's responsible to ensure that uh, employees are having a great experience because everybody plays a part in it no matter how formal or informal however casual or or formal it is but who's doing the design who's actually doing the research like emily does on our team those are skills this is not a hobby. I mean, for many of us, it is a hobby because we're nerds. But this is something that, again, when we talk about intentionality, we need to be intentional about building those skills internally or having a team that's focused on experience design. Just like we have a team at you look at tech companies, they have engineers that are focused on designing, building, testing, creating immersive apps that drive revenue and adoption. Those are the same skill sets that we need because we need to drive loyalty, adoption of our culture, our ways, the the journeys that we're taking our employees on. And so this is a long-winded way of saying you do truly need a function. You need a set of individuals that design experiences within your organization because if it is extracurricular or it's a top five priority on somebody's list, it's never going to happen. And I I feel very confident in telling you that if it is an extracurricular activity, it will never happen. I've seen it too many times. So Emily, you can, I'm getting, let me step uh, off. This Emily, Emily, the other thing I want to do really quickly is, um, I mean, I was working with an organization. I mean, I, you, can you see my, can you see my screen right now? Yep. We can see it. So I, I you know, this is an example of a listening session, right? Or listening sessions. And, you know, I found this so fascinating the other day when I was going through this. It, and maybe you can talk to it because this shows you're not, it's not just me sitting in an office d- designing. Like, you know, this is one of our organizations. You can see that who it is, Land Lakes, that we work with a lot, where we did some design work. I mean, can you talk about the importance of, like, you're kidding. I surveyed 238 people. Like, what's the importance of listening like this? Let, let me jump in for two seconds before Emily does. So I've had the, the pleasure of working with this, this team, this thoughtful, caring team for, I don't, gosh, I don't know, Jason, like three years, four years, five years, something like that. This is just one example. Lando Lakes has been so intentional about listening to its people. It is humbling. And so I just wanted to throw that out there that this is intentional. This is habitual in the best way. These are behaviors that have been embraced at the upper levels of the organization that say we understand the importance of collecting data and then building things that make sense for our people. But Emily, I'll, I'll go back over to you for a moment. Yeah. So as we think about, you know, why, why do we talk to so many? What is the importance of that? If you that previous slide, you'll see, obviously, we talked to you know frontline staff. It looked like we were talking to production and those who are at their desk. We also noticed we're talking to those stakeholders who are involved. So we are talking to our HR team members. We're talking to IT. We're talking holistically about those who even provide these services. And that I think is something that is really unique about when we think about designing for the workforce is we are designing for all of those individuals 
unlike consumer world, we're not just designing for the end user, right? We're designing for our people. And so when you think about talking holistically, we are looking at, you know, who everyone is involved, like, you know, who's involved in this? Everyone. We have HR and IT, and there are people too. And so making sure we think about as we listen, we're listening to all of them is a really important part of this um, so that we can then make data-driven decisions. So our personas aren't just a pretty face, right? They're, they're actually telling us what do our people need? How do we design with them in mind and make it really accessible for us to do that? And so I think that was a really great call out of just showing, you know, designing at scale, it does require work. I mean, it does require making sure we get out there and talk to all of those different populations and making sure we continuously do that. It isn't a one and done situation. So I like Tracy's comment, though, you know, when you find out that companies are doing this really well or behaving well or, you know, treating their employees really well, they go on this, I got to buy from them list. That is exactly correct. And that is one of the biggest gaps at the upper levels within organizations, not being able to connect the dots between employee experience and customer revenue. It's just a huge miss. So, so can I ask you a, another weird question? Well, I, maybe I, none of these have been weird so far, but here's a weird one, because I was on the line doing a speech earlier this week in South Africa, and I was talking about personalization, my, Ryan, and I just learned from you the difference between personalization and individualization. This is why I love working with you, not just you, you too, Emily. Um, but uh, you know, when we start to think about that, we start to think about this concept that someone said, isn't it creepy? Like, isn't it creepy that we're, that doesn't it make people feel like you know too much about them? You know, and what about data privacy and, like, don't you think people just like looking at link farms where, you know, and I don't think so at all. I mean, I think the world we're in today is one where we're used to, and we feel, we talk about experience all the time and processes generate data, mm -hmm. journeys generate feeling, experience generates feeling. So like, do you think it's creepy? I mean, I'd love to hear everyone's thought in the chat here too. Like, do you think it's creepy to personalize how we deliver to people in a way that meets them where they are and allows them to be their best selves. Yeah. Two points on that. Always. We always have to just explore boundaries. Uh, I come, my dad likes asking questions and understanding people. And sometimes he doesn't have the best boundaries with the questions that he asks because he's again, just uh, perpetually curious. It's that what, what are our boundaries with how we should be interacting with employees? I do want to just comment one thing on personalization and individualization to deliver at scale, we focus on personalization. Once we have the data, then our technology can deliver individualized experiences. And so we start to see that in the consumerized world, like my Amazon homepage and recommendations are pretty individualized. Like they are for me. Now you all might want like 20 pound bags of Sour Patch Kids too. That's totally cool. But I just want to we deliver at scale by focusing on personalization once the data is rolling in and we have a listening strategy in place that's where we can start delivering individualization because if we as humans are trying to deliver individualization or individual experiences to like some of our clients have 350,000 people it, like it just it just won't work but that was my tangent back to is it creepy well, no, and, you know the question uh, yeah. is and emily is that creepy well, you know, okay, Emily, so I'll go back. Emily, oh, you're, Emily you're, you're about to have a baby. Congratulations. Yes. You know, and so, I mean, the fact that we have data, you know, that says, hey, Emily's about to have a baby. If all of a sudden your experience, you know, and I think we do this, we try to do this internally, you know, but if all of a sudden your, your digital experience was personalized to the fact that you're about to have a baby, would that make you feel creepy or would that make you feel good? Well, we had, I go back to Ryan's example about Amazon. If you're willing to like share all that information with Amazon because you're going to buy products from them, wouldn't you want the place that you spend a significant amount of your time each day and the people who are supposed to care about you to also give you that same level of care and like understanding about who you are as an individual? I mean, like if you, I don't know. For me, that just makes sense. I'm like, yes, I do want my organization that I work for to know I'm having a baby and be considerate of that fact. I mean, that's Amazon seems to know more about my life sometimes than the organizations you work with. Right. I mean, Amazon knows that not only am I having a baby, but that I have multiple cats in my household and my husband really likes game. And so all of my recommendations are around those things. Right. And 
that's if I'm willing to have that, why wouldn't I be willing to have an organization that I am dedicating significant amount of my time to and my energy mm-hmm. to do the same thing for me? And I think, Emily, you bring up a really important thing. So we all have done that. Like we've had that creepy sensation where we've just been talking about something and then we're scrolling through like Instagram and there's an ad there. And why? And I, I, I reflect like, why is that creepy? Because it was unsolicited and doesn't add value. Like that's not that's not the relationship that I wanted with Instagram. When we think about it in the workplace setting, we have to be thoughtful around, is it relevant and does it add value? Because if it is relevant, but doesn't add value or it's unwanted and unexpected, that's like, just honestly, like that's like super creepy because again, I'm like, is my phone listening to me? That wasn't my expectation. That's not like, what else is it hearing? But for Emily, like if all of a sudden, like you've told the organization you're having a baby and then you get a leaper onesie that shows up at your doorstep, that'd be for you to tell us whether or not that's creepy, but it seems relevant. It seems to add value and it's based on information that you've been willing to share with us. And I think it goes back again to our conversation. It's intentional, right? Like we are intentionally saying, this is how we show care. This is how we show up and say that we we care about our people. And so I think to your point, yes, the value, it's not that creepy if I get a onesie when I know it's at a place of like, look at, we're so excited for you. Whereas out of the blue, I get a random, you know, just policy that has mm-hmm. nothing to do with my, like, that doesn't feel intentional. That feels like checking a box, right? So I think it's that balance. So so think about for a second, and you guys get a chance to work with software a lot also. So software out of the box doesn't know you, right? Data, building data, and then using that data through the use of Pro, you know, processes and journeys does know you. And there's been a lot of chatter around here about people will never forget what you, you know, people will always forget what you did or said, never forget how you made them feel. So, you know, this is a little bit of a loaded question. And, you know, once again, we, you know, there's 1,431 people on here. We do this as a community. Um, can software, can technology have we gotten to the point where that can make us feel something? You know, I talk a lot about not to feel enraged, but engaged. How do we shift from adoption to addiction? Can technology make us feel something? Technology. If it's designed right and with it, if there's a heart behind it. Yes. I was just going to say technology delivers it's a delivery mechanism. It's a channel. And so if we've designed something to be delivered intentionally, then technology is again, like the don't shoot the messenger, maybe don't kiss the messenger. It can deliver those experiences. And so I would say completely, because we have all been on the other side of it where something has not been built intentionally and the technology or the interaction and outcome within that technology makes us feel enraged, log off, don't want to do this anymore. And so technology by itself is not the experience. We do need to remember though, it's usually the first and last face of experience when our employees are interacting digitally with an organization. And so if we haven't been thoughtful about the design and you're deploying a Workday, a ServiceNow, a Ceridian or whatever it may be, they'll blame the technology because that's the messenger. Just like they used to blame HR, when HR was delivering messages, it maybe wasn't HR's decision, like, hey, we're, we're letting you go, whatever it may be. We have to be really thoughtful about the role of the messenger in this. I mean, Christine said, if a tech experience is created to make an employee's life easier, it definitely proves the company is listening, spending a bit of time to ensure employees save time. Totally agree. Technology can also amplify the message. And Andy, that Right there is huge. And, you know, one of the things I jotted down this morning as prepping for this was, um, you know, Ryan, we've heard a lot about these moments that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't, I'm sure you guys have heard me ramble about this. I'm not a huge fan of that because, I mean, I think there, I mean, excuse me, I'm a huge fan of it, but I'm not a huge fan of the catalog of moments that matter and just say, hey, I'm going to place this in company A, B, C, D, E, and all the moments that matter are exactly the same. You know, I think that what companies are going through, everyone's going through something different. Everyone's different pace and change. Everyone's different high touch digital versus high touch human. So, you know, when we think about moments that matter, how do we 
how do we use technology to amplify a message in a moment that matters? Yeah, and actually it was funny. I've been also just watching the chat and just, you know, everyone talking about, you know, amplifying and making sure, you know, you think about your people. I actually just got off a two hour workshop where we talked just about navigation and taxonomy. And those are very tech driven concepts, right? It's talking about the naming conventions, the organization of your information. But at the heart of that, one of the things we spend a lot of time talking about is a spectrum of understanding when you organize information, are you organizing it around events or transactions? Are you organizing it in a way that makes sense to the people in those moments that matter? Or are you going back to, I just need to take an action. And it's really important to think about those distinctions as you're designing technology, because it is going to be the interface in which people are interacting often with our services, our information. And when we think about events, we're thinking about how people are experiencing life rather than saying, I need to you know, change my health benefits because I have a new baby. Instead, you're saying, we recognize that you had a really awesome life event. And here are the things that may be important to you to make your life better and easier in this moment. And that's really, I think, the important distinction of technology. Again, is that it's that enabler. It's that delivery mechanism. But we have to always go back to the purpose. What are we trying to drive through the tools we're using? I, I really like that amplified concept. And I think about, so you can see, maybe I have a drum set behind me and they're loud, like they're obnoxiously loud to begin with. But I remember when I used to play at venues, large venues, not like I was like a rock star, kind of a rock star, but not really. Uh, we used to have to mic the drum set, like put microphones on the drum set. And we literally would amplify the drum set. The benefit of doing that is that people in the back could hear. And so what technology has allowed us to do is amplify the message so that those that oftentimes were left out of those experiences now get to be a part of it. And that's the power. Jason, you talk about technology being the fuel. It is the fuel. It is the amp that we plug our guitar into so that the people at the back of the stadium who maybe couldn't afford the best tickets showed up late for whatever reason that completely justified still get to be a part of the experience. And so that's the power of technology. It allows us to reach those that otherwise would not have been reached. And that's how we amplify the message. But So Ryan, another um, question and Emily that came up in South Africa this week was how often do personas need to be changed? Uh, so for, well, there's two parts to the question. First of all, it was a 7,000 person manufacturing organization who asked me if they needed 7,000 personas, which I was ready. I was like, if you guys do that, like you're gonna make yourself insane. Um, but then the second thing is, how often do they need to change? And it kind of goes back to a little of what Mark just said in the chat, how many implementations that were perfect in early 2019 are ideal for the way that you work today? I mean, I think that most people have changed, whether it be how they work, how they feel, et cetera, et cetera, between early 2019 and today. So do we need to be redoing personas every week, every month, every year? And then how many do we have when we design in a way to make them stick? Emily and I get into, uh, we don't argue. Well, go, go, Maybe we go. kind of argue. Philosophical debate. About, no, this is what we do here. I'm going yeah. off video. No, it's uh, <laughs> get the gloves out. No, we talk about like, man, do personas even matter? Should we have personas? And I think we're to the conclusion that they are very helpful tools. They are tools to design. Now, the breadth and depth of those tools are really important to be thinking about. And so we could have really broad workforce personas that just help us understand the segmentation. I think about working with airlines and at the highest level, we say we have those that are working in an office. We have those that are working as like on the ground. And then we have those that are in the air so that we can just better understand at a high level. Well, would a pilot and a flight attendant, you know, if we have a pilot, would she want to, do these things. If we have, you know, a gate agent, would he or she want to do these things? It's that sort of understanding at the highest level. And those are really broad. And maybe those, and they're not evergreen, but maybe those are more aligned to the way that a business operates and runs. And so they need to be reviewed and updated, but not completely redone. We might have personas that are really focused then on a very specific initiative. And let's just say uh, career growth and development. Those might need to be updated because the situation in which people are living in has changed so drastically. My view of what makes me happy and why I would develop skills went from 
getting a promotion to, I just like, I'm fine in this role. I just need to make more money. And so it can really depend. I, it's a, it's a tough question to answer. And Emily, I'll give you a second to chime in and maybe push me out of the way, but depends on the depth and breadth of how we want to apply our personas. And then if we have really narrow personas, it's the same thing like, well, how often do you need a new uh, um, passport photo? Not that I've been able to travel recently, but I remember when I was a little kid, it was like every five years because I was changing so much. My picture, if they waited 10 years, wouldn't match. As an adult, now they say every 10 years. And I like look in the mirror every now and then. I'm like, oh, maybe I need a new picture. But, you know, it all goes back to how how often are we using these things and how specific they are. But Emily, I This is where we can have debate. Mm-hmm. I, I debate, you know, I come back to the point of how are you using your personas? So if you're using them intentionally to design, and you're continuously going back to them, you probably should make sure they stay current and continuously, continuously. I'm not saying at an old specifically, I'm saying continuously make sure and challenge your personas. So if you're going out and seeking information, what whatever interval that may be, but you need to, they, it could be incremental change, but those are continuous you know, things that need to be updated. So a persona is really deliverable to me. And this is where we, we get into our debate part of like, the persona is the output. But your input, the, how you're seeking that information, you should never stop seeking that information. And you can decide how often do we need to update the deliverable in which we all agree that this is the, where we're going and what we want to design around. But if you're thinking that you only should be pulsing your employees to update your personas at regular intervals, I think you're going to be, it's going to be a losing battle because things are going to change faster than you can make time to redevelop a a massive persona update. Mm -hmm. And so I I don't know, that's where I get stuck with deliverables and personas of, I also don't think they should slow us down. Mm -hmm. You know, we shouldn't just wait for the right time to make sure we can update the pretty deliverable to make sure we actually understand our people. Yeah, that's so so, there is. Uh, and you have we're, we're you're definitely in the Northwoods Internet right now because you were breaking up a bit. But I think we captured everything that you said. You know, the personas is an output. A persona is an output. What's important is the input. The fact that we went out and captured data that if if you all on the call, all oh, what a 1400 of you walked away with something. Having personas are great, but they are tools to do something with. If you're just creating them for the to have pretty things like don't waste your time the value of the persona is the work that goes into it not that the actual thing itself hey oh we got it we got a visitor hello i'm really good i just got the i was listening so intently and then i heard this chime and i went what in the world is happening so hi everyone uh, i know it's my director my good director (laughs) skills so you know elise maybe you could hey introduce yourself real quick and what you do uh, yeah. Hi, everyone. I am, well, my name is Elise Renouf. I'm calling in from Vancouver Island in British Columbia, Canada. And I am a talent insights data scientist at General Motors. So I work on the talent acquisition team. I'm the very first data scientist that they've brought in on global talent. So super cool, but also a lot of things that we get to work on and, and learn and design thinking is a whole part of our process right now. So I'm in my, so my fourth take, week. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know you're new there. So take, a, and thanks for being part of the community. Take, take something like uh, General Motors, which mm-hmm. people would say isn't a new age company, yet is continuing to reinvent itself. And what is design thinking? I mean, is that something that's core to the beliefs of how General Motors continues to grow? Well, that's one of our core values, right? And and so there is this idea of, you know, customer in mind and everything we do, um, forward thinking. And so it's tough when you are this, you know, historical company and also coming into like an entrepreneurial phase. And so each department is going through their own evolution. So I won't speak officially on that behalf, but I will say that, um, the entrepreneur or the rise of the entrepreneur is just absolutely massive. And and if we can continue to, uh, I guess, just like capitalize on that, empower those people, the people who are, you know, we want to be in the company, we want to keep like pushing and changing and working in that agile growth mindset, but doing it on behalf of a larger organization, I think that's where your sweet spot will be to empower them before they run away. <laughs> 
So at least I, this is what happens when Jess isn't here because I lose control of the show. But um, you know, <laughs> just one more quick question for you. you know, as a data scientist focusing around talent acquisition, I mean, how much work are, I mean, how much are you seeing right now this great resignation combined with people trying to hire people and struggling? Can you talk about that real quickly? I actually can't speak too far into it, to be honest, because I am okay. just getting through my orientation and just getting my systems online. So, <laughs> so I'm so new. It's, it's just insane. Um, and this has been a long time coming. We can see the push. We can see everyone's calling for this data and everyone's calling for those insights and those reasons why. And that's part of why myself and our team, we've got so much of this this work going on. And I know so many organizations are doing that as well. So I, I, I can't speak fact. to. No, no, that's fine. I love the fact there's a data scientist, quote unquote, in talent acquisition. <laughs> well, that's not my official title. It's talent insights. But because yes. my background is data science, I'm I'm doing the whole gamut underneath trying to make sure that, you know, we're we're moving forward in future thinking. That's awesome. Awesome. Important. Well, thanks for thanks for joining. <laughs> Thank you, you for, for you bringing me on. <laughs> yeah, thanks for coming on. So um, I know we're out of time. Sorry, you guys, I, I lost track of time. Uh, but Emily and Ryan, uh, thank you guys so much for your insights. Um, the community, this is something we need to keep talking about. Um, I posted earlier the link to your podcast, the Design and Donuts podcast, which it sounds like is an exciting banter-filled podcast. Um, at the bottom, we also do have a webinar that if you're not registered for, we're great for you guys to register. And by the way, while I'm doing this, Ryan and Emily, could you put your LinkedIn uh, information, your address just on the chat here so everyone can connect with you. Um, I hope you guys can register for the, the session on the 25th um, of August. We're really gonna talk about this concept of people and purpose and a lot about how do we build vision and how do we build strategy to make sure that when we get into the design for people and the design thinking concepts we've talked about today, we're truly aligned and ready. So um, Emily, thanks for putting your LinkedIn there. Madan, Aman, Ryan, I see yours. Thank you. Um, Tori, thanks for joining. Nancy, thanks for joining. To the 1400 plus, thanks you guys for joining. I hope you have a great weekend. For those of you that it's Saturday, I hope you continue your great weekend. Uh, stay safe. Uh, love you all and uh, talk soon. Ryan and Emily, thank you guys so much. Humbled that you're taking the time to be on. Likewise, thank you for the op. Emily, Have thank you. Enjoy day. the country. Thanks. <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> over talk here. <laughs> Thanks, you guys. Take care and please connect with those guys on LinkedIn. Bye bye. Yeah, talk to you all soon. Yep.